Good morning. A few announcements before we get into our lesson today. want to let everybody know the Sanctuary Seminar we did a few weeks ago, the 28th of April, now available on the website for streaming. So you can stream it, you can send the links to friends and stuff. We will have DVDs out, but it takes a little longer to do the production of the actual physical one. want to also remind you about the Aging Brain book coming out and uh, the, the publisher is giving away a free copy of the God-Shaped Heart audio as well as a bunch of brain-healthy stuff for anybody who pre-orders and then registers at the website on this flyer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God of love and God of life and God who cares and a God of truth. And we ask that your spirit of love and truth will be with us and lighten our minds as we study today. May the message about you enlighten this world that you can come and we'd be free of all sickness and disease and health problems. But while we're still here, we want to lift up our, our families and friends. And it's been a request that you uh, check in on Daniel and you send your agencies there and, and oversee what's happening there and intervene in accordance with your will to bring restoration as you know is best. Be with the family to give them peace knowing that you're involved. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in the quarterly preparation for the end time. And the the lesson title is End Time Deceptions. What are the most effective deceptions? The ones that are easy to see or the hard ones? For instance, little boy's chocolate on his face. Mom says, you've been eating chocolate? No. Okay, that's not a hard deception to see, is it? Those are easy. Those aren't the hard ones. What about the deception? Well, if, you, if you look at what's happening to the Galatians, and Paul writes to the Galatians, and they, they were struggling with a, someone, some group that was trying to deceive them. What was the problem there in Galatia? Were these people coming along purporting to be opposed to God? Or were they coming along purporting to have a message that was important for their spiritual development and, and purporting to be interested in their spiritual welfare? And what was the message that they were sending to the Galatians that Paul vehemently opposed? Works and salvation by works. This is how it's often presented. Yes, salvation by works. You've got to do this work, which was in this case circumcision uh, of the body, and you couldn't be saved without circumcision of the body. And was it primarily about that, or was it that was representative of the real deception? If you're not seeing where I'm going with this, what is the basis of bodily circumcision. What's its base? Where does it come from? Representative of a covenant made by God with Abraham and then a certain group of his descendants. And yes, that's where it comes from. And it was directed. It was instructed. It was, you might even say, legislated. Right? There's nothing in design law about circumcision. It was a code, a coded, encoded, Instruction. You might say it was an imposed rule. That's what circumcision was. Was there any salvation in physical circumcision? No. No. So it was an encoded rule for the purpose of education, for the purpose of teaching. That's what it was for. And also symbolic representing. But it was symbolism. That's why Paul says there's no, there's no value in circumcision of the body. There's circumcision of the heart. That's, and that was symbolic of that process. So... The deception was this idea that, that you could impose a system of behaviors that were somehow re- required for you to actually be saved. We're going to see this kind of coming back. In other words, arbitrary rules, rules versus design law. We're going to see this coming back as we look today at the end time deception. And as I go through some very, I'm going to give you some some litmus tests, some bullet points that these are, if you remember these, you can actually test theology and say, is this part of the end time deception or is this part of God's truth? It, it, it will be kind of demarcating the two. We're going to come up with four, at least four of them. And as we do that, then I'm going to read you a news article that was in Fox News yesterday in the aftermath of the school shooting in Texas, written by Max Licato. And as I read that, you're going to put it to the test and see whether it's part of God's truth or part of the end-time deception. So, first paragraph in, in, the, in the lesson, the Saturday's lesson, it says, Even in heaven, before his expulsion, Satan worked to deceive the angels. Leaving his place in the immediate presence of God, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels, working with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealing his real purpose under the appearance of reverence for God. He endeavored to excite dissatisfaction concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that they imposed an unnecessary restraint. 
core lie that Satan used in heaven on angels? What do you think it was to undermine trust? It was obviously targeting to undermine trust in God. According to this, this paragraph, he went claiming to have reverence for God. Do you think, I mean, seriously, we, we weren't there, but do you think Lucifer stood up and said, hey guys, I'm opposed to God, and I want to start a rebellion against God, I'm, I'm recruiting for people to go to war against God. Do you think that's how he started in heaven? No. No, of course he started by going out and representing he had somehow an interest to improve things. This is how he started, purporting reverence for God. But he had a different purpose. What was his real purpose? Self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. Taking over, having loyalty shift in heart. Yeah, no question. Could, could some struggle today with the same issue? They purport reverence for God. They purport promoting the kingdom of God, but they're actually working against God. Could that be true? How can we tell someone's promoting the truth about God or the lies of Satan if... Both the one who's purporting truth about God and the one who's telling lies about Satan, uh, lies by Satan, are, are both purporting to promote reverence for God. I'm here to promote reverence for God. I'm here to promote God's righteous kingdom. I'm here to teach you the truth about the God of heaven. How, if they're both purporting to have the same mission, how can you tell the truth versus the lie? Well, there is a book I was reading. It's called The Desire of Ages, and in a chapter called It Is Finished, the author, I think, gives a, a good job of giving insight into this back-channel kind of issue where the angels in heaven were watching the cross. And if, you're, if you think that wasn't happening, remember 1 Corinthians 4.9, we are a spectacle, a theater to angels and to men. Uh, angels long to look into these things, according to Peter. So they're watching these things. And at the cross, what kind of things were being learned? So I'm going to read some, and we're going to unpack almost sentence by sentence, some of these lessons. And we're going to pull four litmus tests out to see if we can't identify truth and error. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of heavenly beings. Pause. This, who do you believe killed Christ on the cross? God or Satan and evil men? Satan and evil men. Okay. So, this is reference point or test point number one. If you have theologies that are teaching that in order for God to be just, God, all the sins were placed on Christ, and God in his holy righteousness used his power to execute his son for justice sake and punish the sins in his son, and God killed Christ on the cross, that's Satan's lie. Do you know any theologies that teach that? Penal substitution theology teaches that. That God, in order to be just, had to kill Christ on the cross. First litmus test, who killed Christ on the cross? Was it God? If you use Christ's own words, what did Christ say? My God, my God, why are you killing me? God didn't lay a hand on his son. He stepped back and stopped protecting his son from evil forces, but stopped protecting him, surrendering him to his choice, what Christ chose to do. And what did Christ chose to do? He chose to be our Savior. In order to be our Savior, he had to go through this experience. And the Father surrendered his son to his choice, but the Father didn't kill him. Amen. So if you have a theology teaching that God killed Christ, and if you want evidence for that, um, from Christian literature, across the landscape of all denominations that teach penal substitution theology, you'll find it in all of them. doesn't matter denomination. You can get that either from the um, lecture designer or dictator or the God-shaped heart book. The, those references are there, many quotes from various sources. Keep on with the quote. Henceforth, his work, Satan's work, was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and the defilement of sin. If you think that that wasn't happening, read the book of Job. In the book of Job, you see this exact process happening. Satan's walking to and fro on the earth. He's making allegations against people on earth. Okay? So the question, though, here is, he's restricted now. After the cross, his work is restricted. Well, what's the restriction? Was it a force shield God put up using power and Satan's trying to go into heaven and can't get off the planet? No, what caused the restriction? Think design law. What is God trying to achieve? What's his goal for all intelligent beings? He wants our love. 
He wants our trust. He wants our understanding. He wants our loyalty. He wants our devotion. How, how can he get that? By truth, presented in love, leaving you free. You must be persuaded. So the heavenly angels watching the character of Christ on the cross, watching what Satan was doing behind the scenes and stirring up the mob to crucify him, they had evidence of two different characters at work. And so Satan revealed himself as a murderer. He revealed himself as a liar. He revealed himself as a fraud. So we're not listening to you. His work was restricted because there was no intelligence off planet Earth, outside planet Earth, that will listen to his lies anymore. We don't trust you. We don't listen. His work's restricted here because those beings are so settled into the truth about God now that they won't listen to the lies of Satan anymore. So a second reference point would be the um, end time of end time deception would be the methods being employed. What methods do God does God use? Does God use the methods of power, coercion, might, or truth presented in love, leaving people free? What methods does Satan use? Coercion, deception, violation of freedom, exactly fear, intimidation. So you can look at methods being used. If you have a theology that has God in the role of saying at some point, for justice sake, I'm going to use my power to imprison, to take your freedoms, to ultimately execute and kill you. If you don't do what I say, again, there is Satan's method at work. Continue on with the quote. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Yet Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. Pause. What did they, they just saw the crucifixion. They saw the self-sacrifice of Christ. They saw the evil of Satan attacking him. The, the, what did they not understand? They now understood that Satan had lied. They now understand that he can't be trusted. They now understand that God told the truth. They now understand that Christ is completely trustworthy. So they understand that the character of Satan is untrustworthy. The character of God is trustworthy. But what did they not understand? Something they don't understand yet. The remedy. It's not who they can trust. They got that piece. They know that now. Next sentence. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. Pause. What are principles? What's another word for principles? Design laws. Design laws. The laws of God. The principles of God. His methods of governing. His... his um, structure, how he constructed and built reality to, to rule and govern, that was not fully understood. God's trustworthy now. Satan's a liar and a fraud. Can't trust him. But how it all works, how the laws work, how it's designed protocol works, they don't get it yet. Still don't see it. The principles at stake were not fully, fully revealed. And for the sake of man, Satan's existed, existence must be continued. Whoa, when I read that many years ago, I'm like, what? Wouldn't we be better off if he were just eliminated at that point? I see some heads now. Yes, we would have been. Hmm. So I had to think about this. I had to think a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of years about this. For the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. How is it for our sake that he was not eliminated, that his existence continued? What benefit could there be for us? Let me ask you this. Is there a difference in someone telling you that your son is a thief and you catching your son in the act of stealing. Are those the same? Is there a difference for you? Which one is more likely to be persuasive for you? Catching Hmm. Is there any need for Satan to reveal his own nature to us? He revealed his nature to the angels. Is there any need for us to come to that conclusion on our own, to see the evidence for ourselves? Is there any design law involved in, this in our response? Well, next sentence in this, quote, in this quote. Man, as well as angels, must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. He must choose whom he will serve. Satan's existence was continued for you to be able to see the contrast between God's character and Satan's character and for you to choose for yourself whom you will serve. Why must we choose? Why? I think before you had said we choose to strengthen 
our character or if you are tempted from any temptation uh you're you're behind on your house payment and and you're at work and and it's a, 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 a there's a there's a cash in the reg, in the registry and you're the cashier and and uh and, and there's a temptation oh, i could take this money and make my house payment um you have to make a choice if you choose to take it or you choose not to take it will either one of those choices have an impact on you if you say no to the temptation doesn't that help solidify you in righteousness if you say yes to the temptation doesn't that change you and damage you and injure you internally okay so your choices change you that's number one but what about this one does god have the power now, we're only talking power. We're not talking character at this moment, just power. Does he have the power to reach into somebody's mind and change their mind for them? Yes. He has the power. If he were to do that, though, what would be the consequence? Would that person still be the same person? Or would they basically become a robot at that point? They've been overwritten. And can robots love? So God can't use power to overwrite your individuality, to write in good character. You have to be a willing participant. You have to be persuaded by the evidence, lest you just become a robot. That's why it says in Zechariah 4, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, presented in love, leaving people free. Thus, it is for our good to see the contrast between the two systems and choose. And when we choose, we're transformed. And between who are, what are we choosing? Merely to believe in God or to not believe in God? Is that the choice we're making? Or is it really what kind of God are we believing in? What methods, what character, what law does God govern by? And what was the lie that Satan told in the beginning in heaven? Well, let's keep on with this quote. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. What is Satan's lie here? Every sin must be punished. Yes, every sin must be punished, and that is a lie, and that lie is based on what, what's beneath that lie. Why does every sin have to be punished, according to Satan? Because God is just. Because God is just, and, and justice punishes sin under what kind of law? Imposed law. So without actually saying it, by functionally describing it, the lie is that God makes up rules that have no consequence, and God, in order to be just, must use his power to inflict punishment. Every sin has to be punishment, urged Satan. God's the inflictor of pain and suffering. Sin doesn't harm you. Sin doesn't hurt you. God will hurt you because of it. So pain and suffering now come out from God. God is the source of death in this kind of view. So here's our third reference point to end time deception. Does the system you believe in or the system you're being taught have God as the imposer of pain, suffering, punishment, and death for sin? If it does, that's part of Satan's end time deception. And again, we find that the penal substitution view is part of that deception. So let's go on with the quote. When men broke the law of God and defied his will, Satan exalted. It was proved to declare that the law could not be obeyed, that man could not be forgiven. Because he, after his rebellion, had been banished from heaven, Satan claimed that the human race must forever be shut out from God's favor. God could not be just, he urged, and yet show mercy to the sinner. Have you heard this line of reasoning before? That to not punish sin is a failure of justice. So somebody has to be punished for it. You can't be merciful. You have to punish the sin. So either we get punished for it or Jesus took our sins and he was punished in our place. That's part of the end time deception. It's part of Satan's lie. Continuing on with the quote. But even as a sinner, man was in a different position than that of Satan. We read this quote last week, remember? What was the difference? Lucifer in heaven had sinned in the light of God's glory. Tim as no other created being was given a revelation of God's love. Understanding the character of God, knowing his goodness, Satan chose to follow his own selfish, independent will. This choice was final. There was no more that God could do to save him. But man was deceived. His mind was darkened by Satan's sophistry. The height and the depth of the love of God he did not know. For him there was hope in... Right in mid-sentence, I'm pausing. <laughs> there was hope in a payment to appease God's wrath or propitiate his anger or to make a legal a payment for the law's satisfaction, for him there was hope in a knowledge of God's love. 
by beholding his character, he might be drawn back to God. What kind of law is being described here? What kind of law? This is design law. It's the law of truth. The truth will set you free. It's the law of worship. By beholding, you will be changed. It's the law of sowing and reaping. You will reap what you sow. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature will, will reap destruction. Those who sow to the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Uh, it's a law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise. It's a law of love, other-centered giving. You're transformed by that law of life when it's written on your heart and mind. It's a law of liberty. We present the truth and love. We leave people free. This is design, law, healing, transformation, renewal. Let's go on with the quote. Through Jesus, God's mercy was manifested to men. But mercy does not set aside justice. Pause. What is justice? How do you define justice? Justice means what is doing what's right, doing the right thing, doing the just thing. In the Greek New Testament, dikaio, dikaio sune, is translated legitimately to two different sets of words, just and justice, or right and righteousness. Same Greek, two different words. We talked about this before class. Do you hear, and when you hear the word justice, do you hear that connoting the same constructs and ideas in your mind as righteousness? He's not only a God of mercy, he's a God of justice. Does that sound, he's not only a God of mercy, he's a God of righteousness. Justice in American, at least in English, typically connotes some aspect of holding somebody accountable, bringing them before a magistrate, punishing them for their wrong, having some accountability of some kind imposed upon them. That's what typically connotes this idea of justice. But that's because we hear the word justice, doing what's right, defined by the law that we understand. How do you define what's right and wrong? Well, it's just or right to punch somebody in the face in boxing. It's unjust to punch somebody in the face in soccer. How do you define what's just and right? By the law of the system. So if your law functions like human law, system of imposed rules, with no consequence, then we have to have a magistrate, some, some ruling authority to oversee who's right and wrong, to make a judgment, and then to mete out the punishment. That's human law. That's how we do things. So it sounds so right that that's what God's... But God's ways are not like our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His laws are the laws of reality are built upon. If you want evidence for this, God-shaped brain series, the lectures are out there for free on the DVDs or the, uh, the, the specific um, lecture, designer or dictator, the second lecture in that series. Keep going with the quote. But mercy does not set aside justice. The law reveals the attributes of God's character and not a jot or tittle of it could be changed to meet man in his fallen condition. Why? Why? For the same reason the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet a drowning man underwater. You can't change the law of respiration to meet a drowning man. So if the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet a drowning man underwater, and you want to save the drowning man who's underwater, what needs to change? The position of the man in relation to the law. The law doesn't change, but the man's position in relation to the law changes. He's put in harmony with the law of respiration. This is design law. We're dead in trespass and sin, according to Scripture. We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity. We were out of harmony with how God built the universe to operate. So God sent Christ to do what we could not do, to put the species human back into harmony, to write the law back in the heart and mind. Thus Christ came to change the nature of humanity to put the species back in harmony with God's law of life. Continue with the quote. God did not change his law, but he sacrificed himself in Christ for man's redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Notice that. God was in Christ fixing what's wrong with the world so the world will be reconciled or put back in harmony with God because we're not in harmony with God. The carnal mind is enmity to God. We're against God. And so something in man has to be changed to put us back, to reconcile us back. Nothing was done to God. The crucifixion was not designed to appease God, to assuage God. God was perfect. He didn't need changing. Nothing was done to God's law. It can't change. It's perfect. But the condition of humankind had to be changed. I'm going to go on with the quote. The law requires. Now, if you're in the imposed human law, what, is the, what does the law require? Punishment. Punishment. Payment. Payment. Yeah. Okay. This author really doesn't see things that way. This author sees things the way we do. Design law. Notice what the law requires. The law requires righteousness. A righteous life. A perfect character. This man has not to give. Notice, the law doesn't require payment. 
He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus they have remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Not through a legal payment, which is often taught. Through the forbearance of God. Why do we have remissions of sins through forbearance and not through a payment? Why? And we have to remember, even though we have remissions of sins that are passed through God's forbearance, the remission of sins that are passed through his forbearance is not a cure for the condition. His forbearance doesn't fix our, our destiny. He, he just forbears it. Why? Well, imagine you have a child who's sick with some type of cholera or some other infection, and they have vomiting and diarrhea, and they make a terrible mess, and you provide remedy for your child that cures the child. Is there any need for the child, even if it's an adult child, an adult child with cholera or something, is there any need for the child to make up for you and pay you to do something to restore, to, to, to have you get over the mess that they made on your house when they had vomiting and diarrhea? No, you forbear that. That doesn't matter as long as they're cured, you see? But if there's no remedy is taken, then what happens? They continue to get worse and ultimately die. More than this, Christ imbues men, imbues, imbues men with the attributes of God. Remember, we become partakers of the divine nature, according to Peter. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, according to Paul. He imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric full of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. Now, get this, God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. This was justice being described here. Did you hear anything legal going on? What was the just thing to do? If your child is drowning, what's the just thing to do? Save the child. This is what God is doing. He, this is the just and right thing for him to do. But he can only save the child by getting them in harmony with the law. He can only save us by, through Christ, restoring humanity back to God's design, and then we can participate in that. Yes, Linda. Um, Isaiah 1, starting with verse uh, 24, and I've read this before, but I think it bears repeating. I will get revenge from my foes, this is God speaking, and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and restore and uh, remove all your impurities. Right. And I think in God's mind, and we should understand that, that that's God's Avengement against our uh, the, the troubles we brought on ourselves is his his desire is to make us right. So through design law, vengeance is the vengeance the doctor has against smallpox, a doctor has against polio, a doctor has against bacterial meningitis. Doctors will use everything in their arsenal to viciously attack polio and smallpox and bacterial meningitis to destroy it, but they will not viciously attack the sick patient. And so God is going to take his vengeance against the sinfulness itself, the corruption of thought, the, the lies, the distortion, the selfish motives. He's going to take vengeance by purging those things from us and restoring us to righteousness. Keep going with the quote. God's love has been expressed in his justice no less than his mercy. Justice is the foundation of his throne, the fruit of his love. And the justice, again, under design law is always doing what's right, always doing what's healthy, always doing what's in harmony with his creation, his design, his principles, his motives. This is the just and right thing to do. So it's about providing remedy, healing, as described in the previous paragraph. It has been Satan's purpose now, though, to divorce, divorce mercy from truth and justice. How do you think Satan can divorce mercy from truth and justice? How, how could that happen? By getting us to believe justice is not healing, not saving, not restoring, not delivering. That's not justice. Justice is punishing, holding accountable, inflicting pain, inflicting suffering. Unless we have a God who loves us, but if you don't love him, he'll punish you, he'll torture you, he'll kill you. So here's another test point. Another test point to discern end time deception. Mercy being divorced from truth and justice. If you have theologies that present mercy and truth and justice divorced, even though they call it justice, but you understand under design law, justice is not the infliction of punishment. It's delivering the oppressed. And then you can identify Satan's end time deception. By his life and death, Christ proved that God's justice did not destroy his mercy, but that sin could be forgiven 
and that the law is righteous and can be perfectly obeyed. Remember Satan's lie. Sin cannot be forgiven. Sin must be punished. Thus the penal view says that every sin was placed on Christ and God punished every sin in Christ. And God executed Christ on the cross. Thus mercy is divorced from truth and justice. And it turns the truth of God's justice, which is healing and delivering, into this lie that we need to be protected from God. And thus we create theologies that we're covered by the robes so the Father can't see us. We have the blood put in the record books to erase from the record. So when the Father opens the record book, he won't have any sin left there. He's going to have to punish. All these theologies, design. we have a mediator stand between us and God, pleading to the Father so the Father won't lash out and hurt us. We have all these theologies because mercy has been divorced from truth and justice and we teach a lie about what God's true justice is. That's part of the end-time deception. I'm going to tell you the penal substitution theology of you is part of the end-time deception. When are parents going to ask their Christian schools and churches to stop teaching their children this distortion, start teaching the three angels' message of worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, creator, design, law, worship. Continue with the quote. Well, we're almost done with this quote, and then we're going to apply it. Satan's charges were refuted. He had given man God had given man unmistakable evidence of his love. Another deception was now brought forth by Satan. Satan declared that mercy destroyed justice, that the death of Christ abrogated the Father's law. What kind of law can be abrogated? Changed, put aside, set aside. What kind of law can you do that to? Imposed law. This is still all the same deep lie manifesting itself with multiple different types of heads, but it's the same deep lie. God's law functions like human law. What would happen to this universe? What would happen to the world as we know it if we changed, in, in the smallest degree, the law of gravity? You see, you change God's design laws in the slightest degree. Life as we know it doesn't exist anymore. The small nuclear force, the strong nuclear force, all the laws that God created reality, you change any of those, life as we know it ceases to exist. You can't change design laws and have life as we know it continue. This is the lie. The eye that God's law was imposed and the death of Christ paid the penalty sets aside the need for God to inflict more penalties. So if you have his blood applied to you, then you're saved and you can go on and live free of any fear of the punishment from the law. You don't have to worry about obeying it. The law, has, the law can't punish you anymore, see? This is like having diplomatic immunity. The law is still there, but you can park anywhere in New York and they can give you as many tickets as you want. You can speed 100 miles an hour through the 25-mile school zone. You can even hit a kid and run over him dead. But it doesn't matter because you've got diplomatic immunity. They can't hold you accountable. This is what penal substitution theology teaches. No accountability. Because it's all been put on Christ. It's all been punished in Christ. If you accepted its payment, then, you're, then all your sins, past, present, and future, have already legally taken care of. You're immune. Go, go, sin, go sin away. <laughs> Did you include that quote that God's law was unthought of? And that's, that's not in this one today, yeah. Okay. But that's a good one, yeah. The, the idea that God had a law came to something unthought of to the angels in heaven. You think about that. When Isaac Newton described the law of gravity to people, and he wrote down the formula for the law of gravity and described it, did, did that, is that when gravity came into being? No. No, when he wrote it down, he's just described. Do you think when he went to people, hey, guys, there's a law of gravity. There's a law about that. Do you think they go, you know, I, I never thought of that. It, it's unthought of that there's such a law. That's what is being described. And the angels in heaven, God's design laws, they're, they're not thought of. And, it's, and, and that's the only type of law that can be unthought of. You can't have any expectation of obedience to law that's imposed unless it's thought of. You can't have a 35-mile-an-hour speed limit and expect people to obey it unless you inform them. You can't have tax laws and expect people to pay them unless you educate them and inform them. Imposed laws require that you be, you can't go, I never thought of there was a law about that, unless it's design law. It's a great point. Continuing on the quote. Had it been possible for the law to be changed or abrogated, then Christ need not have died. But to abrogate the law would have been to immortalize transgression and place the world under Satan's control. It was because the law was changeless, because man could be saved only through obedience to his precepts, that Jesus was uplifted on the cross. Yet the very means by which Christ establishes the law, Satan represents as destroying it. Here will come the last conflict of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. Hearing that tension between design law and imposed law, the last conflict, that law, which was spoken by God's own voice, 
um, that that law, which is spoken by God's voice, is faulty, that some specification has been set aside, is the claim which Satan now puts forth. Again, pause. What kind of law must you accept first before you can start setting aside specifications? You have to accept the idea that it functions like legislated or imposed law. Remember, churches don't vote to suspend the law of respiration or law of gravity. They vote to change rules that they see just as imposed. Okay, So this is, again, this is the last great deception that will bring upon the world. It, says it is the last great deception that he will bring upon the world. He needs not assail the whole law. He can lead men, if he can lead men to disregard one precept, his purpose is gained. And what's his precept? What's his purpose? To get you to believe that God's law functions like human law, thus God is the enforcer, the, the source of pain and suffering, the one who can't be trusted, the one you must be protected from, you create theologies to hide you from him. It's all based, if you change one precept of the law, then you believe his law can be changed. It's not design law anymore. That's why he only has to get you to believe one. Yes? Well, you know, an example would be, let's say you have diabetes, and the doctor says, you know, the treatment for that is this, 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 this. That's the law of medical. Laws of health. Well, I'm just saying the words. Okay. So you go home and you, you test your blood sugar at times you know it's going to be low. And then you go back to the doctor and he sees that you have all this low blood sugar, but you didn't test it when you should have. You tested it whenever it would show that it was low. So you could fool the doctor into thinking you were actually doing the right thing when you weren't, but could you fool your body? Okay. I, I like it. You know, the body, you can't... That won't change how your body responds to sugar just because you represent something differently than what it is. It's a law that you are damaging your body when you do that. Yeah, so a child who... Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. You can't... That, that design law, you can't avoid the consequence. With that in mind now, I'm going to um, read to you a Fox News quote that was posted yesterday. It's a news article posted yesterday on Fox Online. I've got the, the website for anybody who wants to go read it themselves, but I'm going to read it to you um, by Max Licato in the aftermath of the Texas school shooting. Um, but before we do, I'm going to review the four, the four litmus tests that we just identified. Four litmus tests of the end-time deception. One, theologies that teach God killed Jesus on the cross rather than Satan and evil men killing Jesus on the cross. Two, methods that violate God's law of love, truth, and liberty, such as coercion, threat, force, and deception. Three, that God's justice requires God to use power to inflict punishment. Four, separating justice from mercy by teaching that justice is the infliction of punishment and not the healing and restoration of sinners. Or that surrendering of sinners to their free will choice of non-existence is not an act of mercy and justice also. Either one. Okay, so here's the online article sent to us. I got a link last night from Ben Welliber. And I appreciate him sending the link, and so I'll read the article to you. The title is, Tech, Max Licato, Texas High School Shooting, the evil, This Evil Will Not Last Forever. I'm not sure how many, uh, how many of you, I'm not sure how many more of these we can take. When I saw the words, students shot in Santa Fe school, my reaction was, not again. We seem to lurch from tragedy to tragedy, shooting to shooting, bombing to bombing. The kids didn't deserve such a death. Their parents don't deserve such grief. And we received an all-too-common reminder. Life isn't fair. When did you learn those words, it's not fair? What deed exposed you to the imbalanced scales of life? Did a car wreck leave you fatherless? Did friends forget you, a teacher ignore you, an adult abuse you? Have you ever prayed the psalmist prayer, O Lord, how long will you look on? Psalms 35:17. When did you first ask the question of the prophet, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Jeremiah 12:1. Why indeed? Why do drug peddlers get rich, sex offenders get off, charlatans get elected, murderers get out, cheaters get by, scoundrels get in, hypocrites get chosen? How long will injustice flourish? God's answer is direct, not as long as we might think. Scripture reveals a somber promise, for God has set a day when he will judge the world, Acts 17.31. He is not sitting idly by. He is not twiddling his thumbs. Every flip of the calendar brings us closer to the day in which God will judge all evil. A judgment day has been chosen. The hour is marked and moment reserved. Judgment is not a possibility but a stark reality. Judgment day is an unpopular term. We dislike the image of a great hour of reckoning, which is ironic. We disdain judgment, but we value justice. 
Yet the second is impossible without the first. One can't have justice without judgment. For that reason, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us the things done in the body, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Followers of Christ hold to this promise. Jesus will forever balance the scales of fairness. A day is coming sooner than we might expect in which we will see the devil pay for all the evil he has inflicted upon the world. Satan and all who follow him will hear the sentence, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. Justice will prevail. This promise may not matter to you. For some people, life feels fair and just. If that describes you, count your blessings. There are others, however, who fight a daily battle with anger. They've been robbed. Evil people have pilfered days they would have had with their loved ones. Disease has sapped health from their body. They believe that justice must be served. I'm one of these people. My brother was robbed. Alcoholism heisted the joy out of his life. For two-thirds of his 57 years, he battled the bottle. It cost him his family, finances, and friend, friends. He was not innocent. I get that. He bought the liquor and made the choices, yet I am convinced that Satan assigned a special goon squad to him. When they found his weakness, they refused to let up. They took him in, to the mat and pounded the self-control out of him. I'm ready to see Satan pay for his crimes against my brother. I'm looking forward to that moment when I stand next to D. Our bodies redeemed, our souls secure. Then we will see the devil bound and chained and cast in the lake of fire. At that point, we will begin to reclaim what the devil took. For God has set a day when he will judge the world, Acts 17.31. Let this covenant abate the anger you feel at the hurting world. Devastations have wounded every home. Just last week, I met with a family whose six-year-old twins were sexually abused by a grandparent. Two nights ago, our neighbors were assaulted and robbed in their own home. One of our church members spent two years in prison for a crime he did not commit. The guilty party went free. He, he went to jail. It's not right. It's not just. It's not fair that evil prospers. When you want, wonder if wickedness will go unpunished or injustices will go unaddressed, let this promise gratify your desire for justice. God will have the final word. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Do you hear the gospel of Jesus? Or do you hear the end-time deception? How many Christians, doesn't matter denomination, how many in your church will read this and say amen? And this is, what, this is what's going to happen. When the great deception comes, they're going to go, when Satan impersonates Christ with this type of justice that we must find the wicked and those who break the rules and we must inflict punishment and imprison them and, and no one can buy or sell, say, him who has the mark of the beast, that coercive methodology being used, they're going to say amen. It's that justice is required. We must. We must do it. He's going to come with a rod of iron. He's going to rule the nations. He's going to punish. This is, the, this is what, the, what the Islamic extremists teach. They're looking for the 10th the imam who's going to come and he's going to use power to punish all the rebels against God's ways and methods. You see, the, the Islamic extremists and this description worship the same God. They just differ on which rules you have to keep. That's all. But they're deceived by the same enemy. It's all based on a fundamental failure, several fundamental fears. One, it doesn't understand God's design laws. Therefore, if you read, if you heard in the article about sinners getting away with sin, he doesn't understand design law. Sinners never get away with sin. I have this problem with people like counsel. By the way, a simple example would be like the, the 14, 15, 16 year old whose parents have a rule against smoking and they sneak behind the barn and they smoke and mama never catches them. Are they getting away with it? You can't get away with breaking design laws. Mama might not punish you, but guess what? You're damaging your lungs. You're ruining your health. You can't get away with it. So I have patients who were molested as kids, and I work through the therapy with them. And at some point, they always have resentment. They always have anger at the perpetrator. And the closer the perpetrator was to them, like a grandparent, the more anger and more resentment, because they trusted them, and the trust was broken. And at some point, for them to heal, they have to actually get rid of the anger. They have to get rid of the resentment. They've got to get rid of the bitterness. And so... We have to deal with forgiveness issues. But the person was never caught. They never went to prison. They were operating under this imposed justice system. And they go, well, they got this idea. Well, if I forgive, it's like they get away with it. I'm not going to let them get away with it. I'm going to hold them accountable. And so that's their fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of sin. So I asked the question so they can see how sin really works. I said, if God took you to heaven and he gave you one choice between two options, option A or option B, 
Option A, God says, I'm sending you back to earth exactly where I took you just a second ago. Nothing in your life changes. You just continue to live your life. Option B, I let you train places with the person who molested you. You get to go around molesting kids, but no one molests you. Whose life do you choose? 100% of my patients choose their own life. I said, why? See, I asked, who who do you think got damaged worse when you were being molested? Damaged worse. You were the molester. They always say me, me. I got damaged worse. I give them this example. Now who got damaged worse? You see, somebody does you wrong. They can hurt your body. They can hurt your psyche, giving you bad things to think about. They can hurt your finances. They can hurt your reputation. They cannot damage your soul. They cannot sear your conscience. They cannot warp your character. But when you perpetrate evil upon another person, you sear your conscience, you harden your heart, you warp your character, you damage your soul. You can't avoid it. That's design law. And the more you participate in that, you become harder and harder and harder and more resistant to the spirit of truth and love. And you move yourself further and further and further away from a character like Christ and become more and more in character like the evil one. Okay? And when you realize design, Max Licato doesn't understand it. He thinks there has to be some accounting in a book where you have a, a magistrate give a judicial finding and he inflicts punishment. You don't have to have that. Not when you understand design law, because every sin unhealed, unremoved, and where does God want to remove sin from? Not record books in heaven. That's the false, that's the lie. He wants to remove sin from the heart and mind of the sinner. He wants to remove the fear, the selfishness, the corruption out of you and restore you to righteousness so that when he comes, we shall see him face to face for we shall be like him. We've been restored. But those who have corrupted and hardened themselves in, 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 in selfishness and antithesis to God, when they stand in his unveiled truth and love, the fires of his life-giving glory that we see all through Scripture every time God appears, what will it be like for them? What's it like for the molester, the abuser, the exploiter, the sinner who can no longer use denial? externalization, the blame game, when they come in the presence of unveiled infinite truth and they have awareness of their own condition and they can't hide from it. Not only do they have awareness of their own condition, they have awareness of the pain and suffering that others have experienced because of them. And they have awareness of what they've missed and the opportunities that they have rejected for a better way. What will be It's a weeping and gnashing of teeth, a terrible, horrible suffering, but it's not an infliction by God. It is the unavoidable consequence of unremedied sin in the sinner. This is design law think. And God is still the source of truth and love, and he is not an enforcer, and he's not the source of pain and suffering. It comes, just as the scripture said, those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature reap destruction. The lie of Satan is this thing we just read. From God, he's going to have a tribunal, and he's going to inflict destruction. Thus, we must be protected from God. Well, we're going to have to skip some, some time here because I'm going to get into some other el- elements in the lesson. Hmm. Boy, I'm going to skip all the way up because I think we want to hit Tuesday's lesson. We might come back to Sunday and Monday if we have time. We'll jump to Tuesday's lesson. <clears throat> and we're going to read a little bit of the lesson. It says, in recent decades, much attention has been given to the stories about people who have died in that their hearts have stopped beating and they have stopped breathing only to be revived and brought back to consciousness. In numerous cases, many of these people have have told incredible experiences of a conscious existence after they have supposedly died. Some talk about how they floated in the air and saw from uh, themselves from above and, uh, their own bodies. Others report floating out in their, uh, their bodies and meeting wonderful uh, beings filled with light and warmth uh, who espouse truth uh, about kindness and love. Others recount meeting and talking to dead relatives. This phenomenon has, be, uh, has become so common that it even has a scientific name, near-death experiences. Although near-death experiences remain controversial, many Christians have used them as evidence for the immortality of the soul and the idea at death that soul goes off to another realm of conscious existence. But near-death experiences are, of course, another manifestation of the one of the two great errors. One of the two great errors meaning immortality of the soul, which we skipped and I didn't have time to go into. Maybe I should back up and do that. Well, let's finish this paragraph. As long as anyone believes that at death the soul goes on living in one form or another, that person is wide open to most occult and spiritualistic deceptions, uh, deceptions that can easily promote the idea of either 
openly or by implication that you don't need Jesus. In fact, most of the people who have had near-death experiences have said that spiritual beings whom they met or even their dead relatives gave them comforting words about love, peace, and goodness, but nothing about salvation in Christ, nothing about sin, nothing about judgment to come, and the most basic Bible views. And we'll stop with that. Um, <clears throat> let me just talk about near-death experiences, and we have time, we'll go back and deal with the immature of the soul question. Near-death experiences go back, these types of descriptions go back in, in various forms of literature and writing and historical record uh, more than 2,000 years. They're reported by about 20% of people who suffer a heart attack and are revived from the heart attack. About one in five will report something like this. But what's interesting is that to have a near-death experience, you don't have to be near-death. 1990 study at University of Virginia Health Science Center in Charlotte of 58 people who had near-death experiences found that half of them, 50% of them, would have survived without any medical care at all. In other words, they had an event, but it wasn't a, a life-threatening event. But they thought it was a life-threatening event. And because they thought it was a life-threatening event, they had a near-death experience. Something as innocuous as fainting can produce a near-death experience. There are many theories of what caused near-death experience, including hypoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain, which could trigger seizure in the temporal lobes, uh, hypotension, loss of blood pressure to the brain, release of endorphins and enkephalins uh, in the brain, producing various uh, altered mood states. Uh, the brain, uh, and if it's a resuscitation goes on, some of the medicines injected in the person to try to resuscitate them, these are all potential theories. But I think the best uh, actual description of this was given by Kevin Nelson, a neurophysiologist at the University of Kentucky, has done research on near-death experience, and his explanation, and I think it's probably the most legitimate, is it's REM intrusion. REM intrusion, REM, rapid eye movement, sleep, and in REM you have dream states, and there's a disorder that people can get called REM intrusion where they actually have dreams while they're in a waking state. So if you look at brain waves, they have REM dreams going on, but they're not actually asleep. And so they have these experiences that seem extremely real to them, but they're actually in a sleep state. A study published in 1994 by James uh, Limpert at the uh, Rudolf um, Clinic in Berlin documented how volunteers made themselves faint through a combination of hyperventilating while seated, hyperventilating while seated, then standing and holding their breath, and they would faint. Many of those experienced euphoric, near-death experience sensations such as floating outside their body, entering another world, or encountering supernatural beings. Basically the same things from the other near-death experience. You know, that's a YouTube phenomenon now. They're doing that. Did yes. they have this? Yeah. After the Tide Pods, they, they've transitioned to this. It's thought to do to activating the vagus nerve, which stimulates the brain stem, which causes these near-death experiences. Now, I want to point out one thing that the lesson stated about the near-death. So my view, um, first off, their definition of death, the, the primary problem with the whole near-death experience phenomenon is that their definition of death is not death. That's the primary problem. The heart has stopped. We get, you know what? We do that to people every day across this nation when we do open-heart surgery. We stop the hearts. And they're on a bypass machine. But the heart's not pumping. We do it all the time. Do that to people who get heart transplants. The heart has been shut down. Now, do we consider the person on a heart bypass machine while the heart's being taken out? They don't even have heart in their body now. Are they dead? No, this idea that if your heart stops, you're dead, it's not true. The heart stops and isn't restarted, or something doesn't start the circulation again, you will die shortly, but you're not dead yet. And that's part of the problem. They're describing people as being dead who haven't yet died. But now they're in a state of hypoxia, state of endorphins, state of adrenaline rush, state of all kinds of things happening in the body as it's fighting to survive, and they're going to get some strange experiences, but the brain is still active. So death, is how I define it, is necrosis. What's necrosis? Cellular death. The cells have rotted. Okay? When that happens, you've got somebody who's dead. Until that happens, the, the, and, and we're talking the brain now, because you can have the heart removed, and they can have even a, remember the Jarvik heart? You can have a mechanical heart. That person's not dead, but that heart can now die and necrose, but that person's still not dead. So we're really talking brain death. So the problem with the near-death experiences is nobody who's had one has actually died. None. Because none of them had a brain that rotted. Their brain stayed alive. And that's what's necessary for the person to die. So if you just remember that, it'll clear it all up. So whatever's going on here, it's not any evidence of what happens after a person dies, because they haven't died. So you can't have that evidence yet. 
Back to the question then, let's back up and close in the last few minutes with this question of immortality of the soul. It's a great assumption, but if you look at Scripture, and there's two lines of evidence. The first line is just the Scripture evidence itself. What does the Scripture say? And then the second is the implications, if it were true, of what it would mean for the kind of God we worship. But I'll just read some text real quick from Scripture. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins is the one who will die. Genesis 3.22-24, the man, uh, this was after, after the sin, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Okay, <laughs> so the Lord banished him, put up an angel with a flaming sword to prevent them bar their way to the tree of life. What was the reason given that they couldn't access the tree of life? So they wouldn't have, so they wouldn't live forever. <laughs> Pretty straightforward to me. First uh, Timothy six fifteen and sixteen. God, the blessed and only ruler, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If the gift is eternal life, if we, don't, if, if we were barred from the tree of life so we wouldn't live forever, if God alone is immortal, then how is it we're teaching that we're already immortal? Matthew 10.28, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Christ says the soul can die, can be destroyed. So there's a myth in Christianity that we have some part of us. And this, this goes back to an assumption. At creation, when God created Adam and Eve in Eden, at the time that he created them sinless and perfect, at that time he created some part of them that's immortal and can never die. These evidences from Scripture that I just read contradict that. They're not consistent with that idea. would read differently if they were already immortal. Okay, But that's the assumption. Now, so it's number one, it contradicts Scripture. Number two, though, the bigger one for me, what would it mean if it's true? If it's true that God in Eden, created Adam and Eve with immortality at that point. What are the implications? Let me ask you this. Does God have foreknowledge? Does he know the future? Then did he know Adam and Eve were going to fall into sin? And did he know they would have children in a sinful world? And did he know that not all the human race would actually find salvation in Christ, so some would not be saved? What would it mean then that he created them with immortality anyway, knowing that some people may only live 10, 15, 20 years on earth, but they will suffer for all eternity in hell for eons of time and never-ending time? But he, but he knew that ahead of time, and he did it anyway. What, what kind of a being would he be? You see, it's really problematic. Or how about this one? Some people try to get around that, so he didn't know. He doesn't have foreknowledge. He only knew it was possible that they could rub, but he didn't know they would. Okay, so let's take this. He only knew it was possible. It was possible and he didn't know. Why didn't he have wisdom enough not to put him in the position where that was going to happen? Why would he still let that possible? Would you do that to your child? Put him in a position where if they made the wrong choice, they would suffer for all eternity with no chance of relief? No, you wouldn't. Are you more wise than God? See, this idea of the immortality of the soul really corrupts our ability to trust God. There's something wrong with him, that he would create such a structure in the first place. Then why did he create Satan? Knowing what Satan was going to do. What did we just read? <laughs> what did we just read in the whole thing? Why was his existence continued? What's the reason? What's the necessity? To show us. By the way, he did not create Satan. He created Lucifer. Mm -hmm. Lucifer was a sinless being, and there was no flaw in him, no defect in him, and Lucifer corrupted himself into the being Satan. So I, I, I'm just going to clarify, he did not create Satan. Satan corrupted himself. There's but a difference. Do what going to do. Yes, but why? What are the alternatives? Think through the alternatives. Would you rather have a universe? Would you personally rather be simply a programmed robot? Would you prefer that? God, make me a robot. I can't love. I can't think. I can't choose. I'm just programmed to function as someone else programs me. Would you like that? Just because he created something that could sin doesn't mean that we would be correct robots. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm just asking if you'd like that. Would you do it to your children? I don't know. I wouldn't you wouldn't want that, and you wouldn't do it to your children. Do you understand the only way God could not would be to not give free will to his beings? He gave free will. He created him sinless and gave him free will. That's it. Because why? Because love only exists in the atmosphere of freedom, and God is love. He gave them freedom. But he didn't cause it. He didn't, he didn't instill it. He did nothing to initiate it. It all came from the corruption of Lucifer himself. He chose to abuse the privileges and, and abilities that were given to him in perfection, and he corrupted himself. Did God have the power to wipe Lucifer out at that moment and then wipe the memory of him out from all beings? Yes. And what would that have achieved? 
What kind of being would God be? What kind of character would he have? Would he be trustworthy? Would he be somebody who gives us real freedom? It all now becomes a grand, grand manipulation. And ultimately, then God's the kind of being Satan said he was all along. Somebody we can't trust. So that's exactly why he didn't give immortality to any being, but we get the gift of eternal life when we're solidified in loyalty. Yes? So the common metaphor would be you have a child who does something wrong. Do you kill that child? Some cultures do. I just read this week that a woman was uh, stoned to death in, uh, was it uh, Pakistan? Uh, one of those places over there uh, for, having, uh, adult- for having sex before she got married. Her family stoned her to death. Some cultures do. And, 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 but by beholding, we become changed. What kind of God do they worship? Right. Okay, they're becoming like the God they worship. That's part of the corruption. Do you understand? And you say, well, Christians would never do that. Really? Salem witch trials. What are the Salem witch trials about? What is the Inquisition about? What is, what is the Crusades about? What was Rwanda going on? These are all Christians in Rwanda. A million people in four months killed. Yeah. And in Rwanda, they actually researched who participated in the killing and who didn't. And they found that those who had an authoritarian, imposed law God construct, participated in the killing, while those who had a benevolent love God construct protected the refugees regardless of denomination. It didn't matter what day they went to church on. It didn't matter how they were baptized. It didn't matter how they took communion. None of the doctrinal stuff mattered. The only thing that mattered was the version of God they, they had, and that determined who participated in the killing and who didn't. Can you cite that study? Yes, it's in my book, The God-Shaped Heart, but it's a Longman's book, and it was research in the aftermath. It's also referenced in one of my lectures, but it's in The God-Shaped Heart. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and close with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an amazing creator, God of love, who, who has created the universe to operate in harmony with yourself, and you gave us real freedom to think and to reason. And there is an enemy who, wants our, who is attacking our minds, attacking our, our belief systems to undermine our confidence and trust in you and thus incite fear and self-centeredness in us. But you sent Jesus to not only reveal the truth, but to develop a perfect human character in harmony with your perfection of love. And we ask now the Spirit will take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us, and then enlighten us and enable us to be effective witnesses in this world, that the world will be lighted and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.